This is a special episode of Effing Shakespeare, recorded in collaboration with the 2021 AWP Conference and Book Fair. We're thankful to be the official podcast for AWP for a second year and have invited a gallery of guests that you don't want to miss out on. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you interviews of amazing writers sharing about their amazing work. Enjoy. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. So Michael Zapata is in the virtual studio with us now, and we are so excited to talk with him about his novel, The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. It was the winner of the Chicago Review of Books Award for Fiction. It was an NPR Best Book of the Year a most anticipated book of 2020 from the Boston Globe and the Millions, which is one of my favorite lists. And it was his debut novel, People. Michael, we have too many questions to ask you and not enough time, but we're so happy to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm really excited. First of all, can you just tell us a little bit about this book, which I still... I'm not sure how you kept it to the few number of pages that you did, because it's not a huge book, but it does so many things. So could you give us a maybe a thumbnail sketch of this meta yeah. and parallel narrative book? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, so at its core, I always thought this was a novel of exile. So it's sort of what is sort of intertwines and coalesces all the sort of multiple characters and the multiple generations that sort of inhabit it. Um, in short, it's about a Dominican woman who's exiled when the American Marines invade in 1916. She ends up in New Orleans married to self-proclaimed last pirate of the new world in New Orleans. She writes a cult classic science fiction novel. She tragically passes away before um, her second can be published. Um, and then so what ends up happening is a literary mystery in which some um, 70 plus years later, an exile himself from Israel in Chicago, who's working as a hotel concierge, finds in his grandfather's things after his grandfather became deceased, the sequel, 900 page sequel to Donna Moreau's sort of cult classic masterpiece. And so it unfolds across generations, inhabits the Russian Revolution. Chile, Argentina, the Dominican Republic, and certainly New Orleans. But what tethers it all, just a couple places. (laughs) (laughs) But what I always like to think is what tethers it all is the experience of exile. So why exile? For you, was this a thing you're needing to want to write about? Or or... I'm always fascinated when I talk to writers about whether it's the characters who tell you what this is about or if you knew what it was about and then told the characters what they were Yeah, You know, I, I think for me, it was always place and characters and living in that liminal space. So, I, you know, I grew up, my, my father's from Ecuador. He's, I'm first generation and he's an immigrant from Ecuador. And my mother's family's from Lithuania, Jewish. They came to Lithuania, Jewish heritage, and they came to this country a hundred years ago. So I was trapped very happily between stories of exile from both South America and also Europe. And very fortunate to know, for example, my great grandmother who passed when I was 13 and we'd sit at the dinner table. And I always, you know, I tend to say literature for me, I was first introduced to literature at the dinner table and sort of these long oral traditions and stories of exile and sort of the happiness and pain and and tragedy and liminal spaces that come with that. So when I, when I sat down to really try to figure out what my first novel could be, I, I almost, it wasn't in the process of choosing topics. This was the stories that were initially found in, in my original 
experience as a kid sort of just came out. Mm -hmm. Can you read some of it for us? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to read a section in which Maxwell Moreau, son of the titular character, he wanders. He has this tendency to wander as a three and a half year old. And I wrote this when I didn't have a three and a half year old, and now I do. So, so here we are. Fiction is magic. <laughs> as Maxwell's tendency to wander, his parents grew more and more worried, and they decided to frighten him. They went to the library, and since only the pirate could read, he found a book called Dinosaurs and Flying Reptiles of the Jurassic and Cretaceous Eras. Maxwell sat on his mother's lap while his father read out loud to him and showed him illustrations of pteranodons and pterodactyls and pterosaurs. In hushed tones, they told their son that when he wandered, monstrous creatures with sword-like beaks and black wings um, would take to the sky and search for him. If they found him, they would devour him. When they told Maxwell this, his eyes lit up, he squirmed and laughed, and his parents realized that they had made a terrible mistake. <laughs> Yet one thing did seem to work. Maxwell's mother noticed that when Maxwell had a book directly in front of him, he was less prone to wandering. He took him back to the library. At the library, she met a librarian named Afra or Afra or Anan, depending on who was speaking to her. For example, visitors to the library or city officials called her Anan, but family members and friends of whom she had many called her Afra. Her husband was the only person who called her Afra, which was really the same as Afra, but her husband pronounced the A ah with the lilt that could only be described as the lilt of someone who was deeply in love. She was half Persian and half Haitian, and she made it a point to tell the Dominican Dominicana that she lived in the Marini, which in the 19th century was full of Haitian refugees and which was now full of mixed families, musicians, and writers. Afra spoke of Haiti in the same way other people spoke of violent love affairs. And more than a few times, she said that St. Peter would never let her through the gates of heaven on account that you'd be incredibly bored there. Heaven <laughs> would be like a very boring Port-au-Prince, she would say, one without the madness of survival, one without the sea, one without women like her mama whose curves swelled with the seasons. The Dominicana and Afra quickly became close friends. She called Maxwell a little island mestizo, and she called his mother the kindest Dominicana she had ever met, which was the truth. At first, Afra gave the Dominicana spoken English lessons at the library each Wednesday and Friday afternoon. Later, in addition to the library lessons, Afra would visit the Dominicana each Monday night at her home in Melpany Avenue. They would eat red beans and rice, and then Afra would read out loud for the Dominicana and her son. Translated into Spanish, she read Persian poetry, Assyrian myths, Greek myths, and African myths. She read the poetry of Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz and the fables of José Núñez de Callejas, the Dominican revolutionary. She read Latin American pastorals, modern poetry, indigenous novels, which the librarian said were all simulacrums of Don Quixote. That book, she explained, was the one from which all others were endlessly replicated. So, of course, she also joyfully read Don Quixote for the Dominicana and her son. Translated into English, she read a slim Russian novel titled We by Yevgeny Zamyatin. She read British, British plays and American short stories. She read the horrifying and elegant works of Edgar Allan Poe. She also read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and Moby Dick, which the librarian suggested would help the Dominicana make sense out of the American character. The American character, the librarian theorized, was obsessed with movement and tyranny, like a madman, indifferent from the European character which was obsessed with systems and order like a lieutenant, and also very different from the Latin American character, which was obsessed with the abyss of time, Aztec labyrinths, and the Minotaur who wandered both. The madman, the lieutenant, and the Minotaur, the librarian said, constituted the entire history of the new world. In time, by listening to each word and following along with Afra's smiling eyes, the Dominicana learned how to read. I'll stop right there. <laughs> 
<laughs> so good. Okay, Thank so my you. next question is tongue in cheek. <laughs> But I need to know, are you a theoretical physicist nerd with a writing habit or are you a writer with a theoretical physics habit? I think a writer with a theoretical physics habit because in, <laughs> I, I, you know, I studied, I actually studied evolutionary biology in my undergrad and it's kind of been, okay. science has been sort of core. Like I want to write about scientists for quite a long time if I can and if people will allow me to continue to do that. But I found out very early on when talking to theoretical physicists that they're, they're the smartest people in the galaxy. And that's just like almost an impossible thing to traverse, both for me, but so really the only approach into their world is through fiction for me. <laughs> I found the same thing. <laughs> I, had, I had the greatest pleasure to talk and interview um, a few theoretical physicists um, who decided to waste their time with their very special time with me early on in, in writing this book. And I just found them the most fascinating, absolutely brilliant humans. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, it shows in your book. There's such a love for it and care yeah. that you take it was really satisfying. This is against like the podcast rules, so uh -huh. but I, it's I'm gonna break it. So uh, sure. I have to tell a short story and then and then I'll ask my question, which cool. my producer Foo is rolling. Yeah, I'm eyes. ready to put you <laughs> into podcast prison. Like we, <laughs> we just had this talk like it's got to be shorter Kate we don't have a lot of time but I'm it, it, I'm sorry I have to Let's okay so here's the story when I'm prepping for podcast guests I especially for AWP there's a, a mm -hmm. bunch of plates in the air and I'm reading a bunch of books at the same time and a lot of times it happens that the books I'm reading are in conversation with mm -hmm. each other right mm -hmm. so I was reading your book I was happened to be listening to floodlines which is the atlantic's van newkirk did a oh yeah a beautiful podcast series on katrina yeah and so i was listening to that i was reading sarah broom's the yellow house oh wonderful which is fantastic it's so good and then we just got done interviewing jeffrey colvin who wrote a book called africaville which is in part about people's land getting stolen right mm. out from underneath them, which also happened to the homes at the end of Katrina where yeah. people did not have permission and hadn't even come back home yet and things were being torn down and ripped out from underneath them. And then we're going to talk to Vanessa Garcia, who wrote a play mm. about the family who manufactures Havana Club rum. Oh, wow. And that whole thing was taken over by the Castro regime. Wow. And so all these things are talking to each other <laughs> and I'm here in the middle. And, and now your story is about these parallel worlds existing, you know, layered on top of each other mm -hmm. or parallel. And I feel like I'm the Dominicana touching the portal <laughs> and like shifting in between all of these stories. And so I guess the question is, are you, you know, comfortable with people I mean, like I'm, I'm really reinterpreting the way yeah. that works interact with each other, that yeah. art and artists interact with one another. You know, I, I love that you brought that up, number one, because, um, you know, there's these, there's this patternicity, I think, that happens in any given current time. And, and, and I've always, I've been thinking a lot lately about how so much literature right now in particular is about the end of empire. So we're in this stage of sort of the, whether people say decline or end or this transformation or whatever it might be of the American empire, there's these global catastrophic effects that are affecting people similarly, regardless of where they're from. Right. And so it, it makes sense to me that books and writers are, are 
responding to that and trying to get ahead of it. You know, I'm a big, big proponent of thinking of the way history works, where it's this sort of, you know, the past and the future collide in the present. And so I think writers fundamentally, even if they're science fiction writers, even if they're historical fiction writers, they're writing of the present. And I, so I think we have this patternicity in history and the sort of speculative ideas about what the future might entail when we're at the end of empire, when we have ecological collapse. And we're sort of forced to respond to it in ways that feel like a multiplicity. You know, all these various writers mm-hmm. are inhabiting different versions of, of what they project, think might happen and how they interpret how the past influences the present. Uh, I, I just think that's absolutely astounding and fun that those connections can be made. And I think in the course of writing this book, I did think a lot about how sort of these you know, that big question of what if, at, at what point, you know, it's not a call to action. Novels aren't call to actions. At the very, the very least, they're, they're speculative, right? And trying mm. to force us to think about what our lives might entail. But on the other hand, I think science fiction, which is explored, the history of science fiction in this novel, is an attack on the empire. It is a way to understand the what ifs. It's a direct sort of assault on our most potent ideologies and so I wouldn't be surely that's in science fiction literature now and has been for decades um, but I find I'm, I'm astoundingly happy to see plays and literary fiction and podcasts sort of inhabit that same space now it's the multiverse back to theoretical physics <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, it's <laughs> yeah and it's not just like you know, little me in my podcast journey, it's like mm. every person who comes to the text is is having those conversations with their entire histories. Yeah. And I think we're entering sort of a time period that um, humans have felt for most of our history. Like we're, we're decentering the human. Ecological collapse forces us to reevaluate the ways we tell stories. We're not in a position to center the individual as much when you know, which is sort of the romanticism of sort of contemporary literature, right? Centering the individual, mm, right. having this narrative arc in which we follow the path of the hero or the anti-hero. A lot of that is being decentered, I think, not only because of the brilliance of so many writers today, but because they're responding to crises. They're responding to collapse of empire and ecology. And I think it forces us truly to consider narrative in a way that was considered before the you know industrial revolution, in which nature was not this controllable you know phantom substance it was this the overreaching effect it was the most powerful force in in people's lives every day for like what like a million years <laughs> before <laughs> before this tiny little you know, before this tiny little uh, you know like a hundred yeah, yeah. <laughs> i love that you mentioned we in that in the list I'm not very well versed in science fiction, but my my ex-husband said if there's one book from my you know vast array that you have to read, it's we. And oh yeah. It's amazing how often I think about it. Speaking of decentering humans. <laughs> it's so good. And I, I think it's such like a foundational text to like all really like is. all modern science fiction. Really and of course through the minds of exiled Russian. So. Yes. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> How do you hope that this book will add to that conversation, that sort of mm. legacy that's been rooting its way through sci-fi and into literary yeah. fiction for a long time? I hope people read it this year. <laughs> as far as legacy, I hope they continue to read it at least in 2021. But I, but I, I really like, I, I'm, such, I'm such a fan of science fiction. And I always thought that 
you know, so much of popular, I think, American media gets science fiction and fans of science fiction wrong. You know, they, they, they sort of like put a quote around this idea of nerd culture or like they put this idea of like, well, you know, future casting or what is entertaining. But the true reality is like the people I know who love science fiction the most truly view the world through the lens of what if. They tend to be mm. the most political people I know. They tend to be the people who are most engaged on a street level with organizing. Uh, you know, I was, before I, before I was, was a writer, I taught high school, I taught high school dropouts for 10 years in Chicago. And so a lot of organizing through immigration rights and a lot of sort of like socialist justice organizing. And, and that's where I found so many science fiction writers, you know, not only in my youth and quote unquote, sort of the nerd tables <laughs> in junior high or high school, but those people who started to really activate and organize in their own lives. And so I wasn't going to tell a science fiction story. I'm, I'm also really love you know, science and history, but I wanted to hopefully portray a history of science fiction that didn't omit those people and didn't omit you know, people of color and surely Latinas and Latinos who have been writing science fiction for decades and decades. Mm -hmm. and, you know, Roberto Bolaño, who I just adore his work, I know touches upon a lot of that stuff. And when I read some of his works where he touched upon the science fiction writers of Latin America, there was like this you know, explosion in my brain, like this is what I want to research, this is what I want to read. And, and, and surely I hope at least a little bit to offer that version of the science fiction history in here. Will your next book have a similar obsession in this vein? Because I could see you building an entire career <laughs> writing all the imaginary books that you've mentioned yeah. in <laughs> uh, last book of Adana Marothers. I had an article that actually counted. I forget. I mean, you probably yeah. know. Is it ninety-eight fake books that are mentioned or something? It was a lot. They counted. Yeah, it was. It was the review for the New York Times. He counted a number, and I'm forgetting the number right now. But uh, I, I love. You know, I love. <laughs> it was a lot, and I found. So you could just know, write all those books, and I, I would could. be perfectly happy reading all of those. And it could be a, a set, and you could make millions <laughs> sure. of dollars because you could just sell it. <laughs> Um, as a box set at Christmas. <laughs> there's this there's oh, this writer I adore who who emailed me and said, so when can I read, you know, when can I read a Donna Rose novels? You you have to write those. And I was like, I know I want to so bad. I just don't, I don't know when, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but but this fast, I love also the idea of like the summaries, you know, it's a very like board haze kind of game almost like mm -hmm. summaries of novels you'll never write just because time is finite. And, and these are sort of the books you'd want to. But I, I love, I love, sort of exploring that idea. I think there's similar, you know, I'm working on another novel and, and for surely for whatever obsessive reason, there's ideas about science fiction and history. Um, but primarily it's about someone who is in the future in the year 2050, but is just absolutely trapped in ancient history and, and sort of is like this. So this, 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 this concept of like, I don't think the future will be feel very sci-fi. It's like day to day Mm. We can see, right day to day our day to day experience doesn't feel sci-fi right so I, I think one of the sci-fi tropes that I'd like to explore is how there's this like illusion or normalcy that happens regarding this, even regarding the terrible circumstances of the future almost like a boring domestic <laughs> that's not what the book's <laughs> going to be but like I'm really obsessed with the idea of like what is it? What does the domestic sci-fi feel like? Oh, I love it! <laughs> I love it! I love it! All of our devices and and electronics are already like you know clappable or I mean yeah, yeah we're, we're we're getting there. There's there's this concept like I think it was Isaac Asimov who who was saying you know the point of technology is to make itself invisible, which is terrifying, right? But also like terrifying. very pre very present. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, like I'm thinking of, you know, when we're part Android and, and it's like normal people situation where it's, you know, like a domestic <laughs> passive dispute between yeah, yeah. two androids. So it's like... <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, there's also this idea, like, I think, I think the internet will be kind of fleeting. And people get, like, I had one friend who was annoyed with me by saying that all the time. But like this, it's very fragile. When, when you look at sort of ecological collapse and you look at sort of this, this sort of brief modernity, like what do we do without the internet? I, I don't think like my great, great grandkids will have the internet. I just don't think that's a plausible future and whatever that's future casting. But I think it's like, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's a strange thing to think about how the, the future sort of projects on the present in that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Well, we can't wait to read what comes next. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we like to ask just in parting, although I really don't want to, I don't want to let you go, but we, <laughs> we like to ask what, what thing, animal, vegetable, mineral podcast series movie helped you get through the last year so we can provide oh, wow. a survival kit yeah. for the next few months because it's going to get better soon. Oh. I hope but so. until you, then, yeah, you know, my recommend my wife's a public school teacher. And so she had, you know, she's in the process of getting her vaccinations and it feels like this existential weight, right. For so many of us, like being lifted at least slightly. Um, what got me yes. through the year, you, you know, this is going to be, it's going to be a pretty straightforward thing. I, I have two kids. I have a three and a half year old and a one and a half year old. And being at home during a pandemic with children was just stunningly difficult and challenging, um, especially in a country that largely abandons parents, regardless of pandemic or not. Yes. But for as difficult as that was, it's this period of time where I've had some, you know, intimacy and exchanges with them that I think I'll think about for the rest of my life. So I don't know that it got me through the pandemic because there's so much <laughs> stress through it. Yeah. It surely will get me through, you know, the memories, you know, as, mm -hmm. as the hard and rough things sort of fade away. I think having that time with them um, and being at home is something I'll never, ever forget. Like long mm. walks with the three-year-old along the Chicago River, um, you know, That's yelling and talking to ducks and, and th just very, you know, sort of sentimental things that I think will mean a lot to me as I get older. Yeah. Oh, that's so they were, it was equally the hardest thing and, and equally, <laughs> equally the nicest thing. <laughs> yeah. Which is a lot of parenting, I find, yeah. right? It's yeah. the it's shortest time, as they yeah. say, right? Yeah. If, if there, I will say this, if there's a writer who helped get me through this, it was Laszlo Krasnorkai in these endless, beautiful, magnificent, oh gosh, yeah. complicated sentences, because he forced me to put away, you can't, I don't think you could read him while having the internet close to you. It's sort of this, this temporal, like longness. I think he slowed time for me when, when, you know, instead of obsessively mm. reading tweets, like it's some sort of like a mega novel or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it was such a pleasure to talk to you, Michael. I hope we can stay in touch and we're going to be waiting with bated breath for the next, the next. Thank you so much. I had such a great joy to talk to you today. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs> This has been a live recording of the Effing Shakespeare podcast by Bloomsday Literary at the 2021 AWP Conference and Book Fair. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fulu. 
Our trusty and hardworking intern is Sanditi Sadam. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever podcasts are found.